Bill out there, and uh, welcome to episode 19 of Maybe Next Year. Uh, today I'm hosting, uh, Corey Foss hosting with Dave Scogan. Dave, uh, nice to have you back after a week off. How are you doing? Hey, we're doing good. Good to be back. All right, and uh, tonight our guest is going to be uh, Luke Rasmussen. Luke joined us last week, joined me and Shay last week, and uh, uh, we asked him to come on back this week because there's a lot of different things that we kind of had on the docket um, that we didn't get to and, and we'd like to get to tonight. And uh, I know you were prepped and ready for, so uh, thanks for coming on back, Luke. Yeah, thanks, Corey. And hey, I got, I got to mention, you have a voice of an angel. I mean, quite <laughs> honestly, it's like a it's like a young Kevin Costner in Dances with Wolves. It's, it's uh <laughs> It's really a treat, so glad to be here. <laughs> That's a heck of a reference there. Thanks for that. Um, all right, so where to listen to us at? Uh, check us out. We go up on Anchor pretty quick, and then uh, Spotify and Apple Podcast after that. Search maybe next year. We're the first ones that uh, jump out at you there. Uh, check us out on our website, nextyearpodcast.com. Send us an email there. Check out us. Uh, click on the content or contact button there. You can also... Uh, see uh, a little bit of information about uh, hosts and, and guests and things like that so you can learn a little bit about all of us that are on here. Uh, but we'd love to get uh, some email questions from you guys as well and take a look at those in the future. A uh, couple different things that we want to deal with tonight and talk about. Uh, the first thing is the 82-game uh, schedule that uh, Major League Baseball is taking a look at. Um, the owners just sent out to the players, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, we're going to also deal with uh, some of the impact from um, the, the NCAA is dealing with right now um, in lost season, uh, not just with losing uh, what happened with March Madness, but uh, spring sports and then also the possibility of there being some, uh, you know, next fall, not knowing exactly what's going to happen there. And then we'll finish up. We got a couple of things that we wanted to get to last week. We didn't get to one is a couple of major league baseball. What if questions that I thought were a lot of fun. Um, and I've asked these guys to, to think about them as well. So, all right. Uh, first things first, uh, talking about the major league baseball proposal, um, the proposal that the, they, the owner sent to the players organization, um, looks like this and it's an 82 game schedule and it includes a, uh, spring training 2.0 that begins in June. And the games would start somewhere around July 4th. Um, the playoff, it would be with an expanded playoffs. The playoffs would go from 10 teams to 14 teams. And teams would play in their home stadiums where there is state approval. If there is not state approval, then the commissioner is looking at maybe moving them some other spots. Um, and that will be interesting to see how that plays out as well. There would be universal DH uh, because the schedules would be geographical. And so, and we talked about last week a little bit, AL teams, AL central teams would play NL central teams in their own division and, and uh, same with the East and the West. So uh, rosters would go to 30 man up from 26 and then you would have a taxi squad all the way up to 50 players. Um, so that's interesting in itself. Um, you know, before I get into kind of the revenue Issues that you know the, the most people assume that the players are going to reject this pretty quick because the owners are asking for a 50 50 split um, when it comes to revenue. And I'll kind of get into the numbers on that a little bit, but I think I kind of wanted to initially get you know jump right off the bat uh, to hear what you guys thought when you read this proposal for the first time. Luke, what were some of your initial kind of uh, thoughts about it? Well, it's certainly exciting. 
uh, anytime you shorten the 162 game schedule to 82 or 80, basically cut it in half, you're going to start to see teams really make a playoff push from the jump. Um, you know, you know, the teams uh, are going to put more emphasis on uh, playing games, the full nine innings. With 162 games, I feel like you can get away with throwing a game away. Uh, maybe a day game after a night game, you'll see a lot of teams play sort of uh, their, quote, B squad uh, on their pro roster. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to see that anymore because, really, you're going to get to about game 50 and then you're going to have a concerted effort for a playoff push. So I think it's going to be a lot more exciting for the fans. Uh, There's no way that they'll have fans in the stands. I think that's probably what we're going to see. But if uh, the the most recent UFC event with no fans is any indication, you're going to have millions and millions of people watching. Uh, So I think it creates a more exciting atmosphere. when you start talking about pitching rotations and how relievers are used and injuries become way more impactful, these core oblique back injuries that nag most MLB players, uh, you know, that sideline guys for, you know, 40, 50, 60 days, they're basically done for the year. So I think it creates a lot more excitement uh, and a lot more concerted effort to uh, push, push for a playoff spot. Yeah. It, 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 everything's intensified, you know, I mean, um, and what, you know, kind of ask you but here in a minute, if you think that 82 games is enough to get a true champion out of it. But um, Dave, what were you thinking? Yeah, I mean, it's exciting. And like you just said, for, from the jump, this thing is going to be game on for for everybody. Um, half a season, you can't take a day off. Um, you can't afford to slump. You can't afford to uh, – injuries are going to be very, very crucial on all, all aspects. Um, guys aren't going to get days off. Um, and for the fans, they're adding to the playoffs. So you had 14 teams. You're going to have probably two thirds of the major leagues still in playoff contention um, down to the end of the season. So mm-hmm. the fans are going to be engaged. It's it's going to be fun to watch. Now to just see if they can actually get it going and keep it going, like everybody hopes. Yeah, and that's kind of what we'll move into um, the the biggest concern at this point, at least as the players take a look at it, um, they're proposing a 50, 50, 50 revenue split, which I don't know. I mean, I think probably the average fan seems like, okay, you know, that's not a bad, that's not a bad role, but um, 40% of all revenue comes from gate related income. Uh, and that means, you know, with no fans that's gone. MLB is the only one of the major four sports that does not have a salary cap. Um, and, and that hasn't been as big of an impact recently in the last decade as it was late 90s, early 2000s. But, um, you know, I mean, I, it, we could look at it one way. You know, baseball can set the example for the rest of the sports. They're kind of in a unique position where they could work together and, you know, you know, sing kumbaya and every, every, everybody does uh, what's best to, to get the everybody on the field again. But um, revenue is not equal in Major League Baseball. Um, you know, a lot of his local revenue comes from TV and you look at a team like Miami that gets $20 million from TV revenue, local TV. And then you look at a team like the Dodgers that gets 250 million from local TV revenue. Um, so you're looking at those bottom, bottom teams and the twins fall somewhere in the middle, uh, thanks to a pretty good TV contract and, and a, you know, a nice stadium and, and some of the things that we've seen them do over the last decade. But, um, 
teams that will lose, they're they're some of those bottom teams are going to lose some money um, without fans, and so they came to an agreement. This is where it kind of gets iffy. They came to an agreement in March to pay players proportional based on how many games they played. So let's say they're going to play 82 games. That means they would get 50.6% of their total paycheck, what they were going to get. Um, That creates a problem, though, when you're talking about revenue losses and things that are getting cut back. Um, They figure they'll they'll get about $5 billion down from, you know, uh, tens of billions of dollars that they normally would get, about about $5 billion in revenue if they, with the expanded playoff. You know, the expanded playoff might be what saves them when it comes to revenue. Um, but player salary based on the 50.6 is $2.4 billion. So that's half right there. Okay, so if everything works out great and wonderful, okay, makes sense. We're going to be right about where we need to be. But any unforeseen changes where there's, a, you know, another wave of COVID that comes through and games are lost or postseason games are lost or whatever, and then you're really in trouble. So the players are, are hanging. If they agree to the 50-50 split, they're really hanging on things being ideal, that things working out the best that they possibly can. I think that's what they're scared of, um, that things won't, and, and they're going to be in trouble there. Um, so, But at the same time, if they don't have a season, they're stuck with $170 million they agreed to before in March. You know, So that's the question right now, and I, kinda, I know you guys looked into that a little bit as well. Um, Dave, what do you think on that revenue split? And, and is that something that is realistic or even fair? You know, and that, that's the confusing thing is you, you look at the twins and like a guy like Kenta Maeda, who's got, whose contract is so incentive driven. I mean, how do you even make any type of sense of that now into a short season? Um, it, it's, to me, it's a, it's a, it's a total nightmare. <laughs> if they come to an agreement, um, there's going to have to be some concessions on both sides, but I don't know. To me, that's the sad thing is how, how they're going to come to terms to move this thing forward now that they have something set up, um, unless one of the sides really, really gives in um, or the players come forward and say, hey, we just want to play. Let's get this thing going. But, you know, the owners are the ones that uh, they got to make the money in order to pay the players. And if they can't make any of the money to pay the players, then, what, you know, they're not going to do anything, period. They're just going to sit it out. So it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out. Um, my fear is, my biggest fear with the whole thing is they get it started and then it then it shuts down or stops. The second wave that they keep talking about, um, you know, living in a small rural uh, North Dakota county, we actually just had our first case finally yesterday. Through this whole time, everybody's been preparing, preparing. Well, we're finally getting our first case community spread. So we've been sitting for four months and all of a sudden now it's, you know, kind of finally here. Yeah. So it's hard to say how far this thing goes, where it goes. There's so many uncertainties. Um, I hope they can figure it out, but I, I sadly I have my doubts how this is going to shake out. Well, I just, I mean, there's so much to lose by not playing, you know, baseball is a sport, any of the major sports, you know, you, your careers are, are shortened, you know, you lose a whole year there and then you see the, the free agent market would crash for 2020. Yes. It would absolutely yeah. crash. Um, you know, so what are some things that stand out to you a little bit, Luke? Well, this whole situation is, is extremely interesting. Uh, my background is in finance and business. And so these are, these are the economic ripples that really interest me the most. I think the, the one thing that a lot of people aren't talking about is the legal aspect between all of the 
not only the players, the players union, but also the advertisers, um, depending on contract language, you might have force majeure or superior force clauses, AKA act of God, Hmm. where, where these advertisers, including TV rights, including TV, you know, ESPN, Fox sports, depending on how the verbiage or language of these contracts are written, there might not be any revenue period. Uh, these contracts may allow based on force majeure rules for advertisers to pull advertising dollars. So from a player perspective, the 50, 50 revenue split continues to get whittled down as these sort of ripples through the economy take, take effect. Mm-hmm. Um, advertisers are going to pull advertisement off of, you know, live TV, how, how many commercials or how many ads or TV stations think of the regional Fox sports going to be able to pull in. So we're already talking about a revenue uh, generation that's going to be incredibly impeded by the economic situation that we're in. So from a player's perspective, I certainly would reject the, the proposal. If you look at the economics from ownership standpoint, obviously there's not going to be enough gate revenue to support a prorated salary amount for the players, the coaches, et cetera. So unfortunately, I don't really see baseball coming back as as sort of uh, the uh, the betting odds favorite um i think the money is what is going to keep the two sides from coming to an agreement uh and and starting play this summer so you know i like the idea and the structure of the 82 game schedule making it regional and geographic Uh, all of the sort of operational logistics of it make all the sense in the world but from a financial and economic perspective, I think this goes a lot deeper than just gate revenue versus TV revenue. Um, you're going to have lawsuits, uh, players, to, to Dave's point about Kentamea, um, how can you renegotiate your contract using force majeure? And I think that's going to be a really interesting development as we you know get further along here in the summer. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It, there's, there's. I, I think everybody just like, okay, we want, we want baseball back, we want sports back, we want to watch. Um, we're watching freaking Korean baseball right now. We're so starved for baseball. Um, but there, there's so much more that goes into it. And I think probably one of the biggest issues. I don't think anybody's going to have sympathy for these owners when it comes down to it. Um, you know, people aren't going to feel for these billion billionaires that they're losing this revenue or that re- revenue, and that's why we can't, why we don't get to watch baseball. Um, but you know, Tony Clark is the, the head of the MLB, um, players union. He's their, their rep or whatever. And, and he is not, he's not for this at all. The 50, 50 split. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that major league baseball does not have a salary cap and that basically puts a cap on it. Um, and I think you make a good point, Luke, about if things go sideways and there is no revenue or (laughs) even a loss. Um, those players are left hanging out to dry. And, and as much as, you know, the average person sees a major league baseball player and thinks, well, they're millionaires, they can do whatever they want. They have, you know, unlimited, there's a lot of those lower end ones that live paycheck to paycheck, like, yep. like everyday people do. Um, uh, so it is important to them. Um, you know, the next question looking at those having a taxi squad of up to 50, um, you know, you have a 30 man roster or whatever. So you have 20 guys that are there as a taxi squad. Those guys are going to be minor leaguers. Um, there probably is not going to be a minor league season this year. Um, so are those 20 guys, how are they going to be ready? 
um, you know, what, what's, what's their situation going to be like um, and, and injuries and stuff like that. And you guys both make good points about injuries really having a, 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 a huge effect. Um, you know, I think we look at, say the NBA has 82 games and NHL has 82 games and that's plenty of time to figure out a, a, a real winner there. But um, baseball is a, is a completely different uh, beast when it comes to that, you know, and 82 games is going to seem like an absolute dash, you know, 50 yard dash or hundred yard dash or whatever you want. It, it's going to be, there, there's not going to be a whole lot of room for error there that over 162 games, you tend to work those kinks out. So that's my question is, does a shortened season like an 82 game season uh, really impact or is it favorable to a, a team like Minnesota? Who I think even though we're, you know, I think we're, we're probably pretty realistic in our hopes and uh, calls or whatever that they're going to have a great, you know, they're set up to have a really good year and be a really good baseball team. Is that more favorable to them or does that really uh, put a, 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 a kink in their in their their quest or whatever to to repeat as division champs, Lou. It's an interesting point, and I think you gotta take into perspective of how teams in a normal season sort of develop uh, their pitching versus developing sort of their hitting. And, and baseball is is a is a marathon of fluctuation. Typically, what you see is pitching staffs. Uh, at least early on in the season, seem to develop quicker than the hitters. Um, and, you know, why is that? Well, spring training is a lot of cage hitting, T-work. And once you get into spring training games, your starters throw 40, 50 pitches. So you're seeing a lot of lower-level pitching as a hitter in spring training. You get into the major league, you know, flow, uh, getting into your, your pro games, and now the starting pitchers are – are working five, six, seven, eight innings. So typically the pitching develops first and the hitting comes. But an 80-game season or an 82-game season, will teams shorten their pitching rotation? Will they go to a four-man rotation? No. Uh, so that they can get the, get the most innings out of their guys? Or would they increase it to a six-man rotation to preserve arms uh, for the 80-game for the sprint? I think for the Twins, uh, as we saw last year, they're a very offensively laden team. I think they're they're still poised to be an offensive team, you know, bringing in a guy like Josh Donaldson who can swing the stick. Um, on the surface, on paper, it looks like we've improved from a pitching perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but with this extended layoff of not having competitive pitching uh, or at-bats, um, I don't know if the pitching develops as quickly as the hitting develops. So from a Twins perspective, I could see them jumping out and, and uh, being competitive early on just based on their offense. Uh, but you know, it, I, I, the whole thing of the taxi squad is, is interesting to me. There won't be a minor league season. I think that's a foregone conclusion. So there's really two schools of thought. Uh, one, if you have a taxi squad, are they playing basically inner, inner squad scrimmages to get live at bats and live, you know, live pitching mm-hmm. or does, or, do, or does the players union come back, uh, in their sort of response proposal with, uh, let's just go to the 40 man roster and keep it at 40 for the, for the 82 games, which is sort of a hedge against injury and, um, uh, keeps sort of your bench players. It gives them the ability to, to see live game speed. So certainly is certainly an interesting proposition. Um, I think the twins could do okay just based on their offense. You know, last year, if you're looking at last year, the in 82 games, the twins had the, um, 
what would have been the best record in Major League Baseball. They lost their 82nd game in 18 innings. Um, I think it was to Tampa. I don't 100% sure who it was to, but anyways, um, they had an eight-game lead over the Indians. But in that, it was interesting, in that 18-inning loss, the guys that threw out of the bullpen, by the end of the out of the four or five guys that threw, by the end of the year, none of them were even part of the bullpen. The Twins completely overhauled their bullpen by the end of the year. Um, you know, so that shows you that uh, it, those things take a t- tend to take a, a while to develop. You know, Miguel Sano struck out four times that game, and he was hitting 180. And, and you know, and we know where he was by the end of the year. Um, so just because the team was at X amount of wins and losses after 82 games or whatever, that doesn't mean that that's the t- that's necessarily the team that's going to be there at the end of the year. So that puts a lot of onus on on really figuring some of those things out quickly. Um, you know, I think I like your point about uh, pitching tending to be ahead of hitting, and with that two week spring training. Uh, how ready are those hitters going to be? You know, so uh, I don't know, Dave. As you look at that, um, where do you, how do you see that impacting the Twins, particularly as a, as a good baseball team? You know, I, I think it favors them. Also, you know, you you shorten a season, you can open up things for the unexpected or, or some surprise teams to maybe um, stay in contention. You know, a lot longer than you think. But you look at the Twins, and when you look up and down the lineup now, you see a lot of guys who are mature. Nelson Cruz is a mature guy. He's been around a long time. Donaldson's been through it. Um, obviously, nobody has been through a situation like this. Um, but when you compare them to the White Sox, an up-and-coming team, a bunch of young guys, you know, they they don't know they don't know how to get themselves ready on the drop of a hat. These guys have been around. Nelson Cruz is a professional. You read articles about how good he is for the other players. He knows what he needs to do to get himself ready. Whenever they say, we're going to play, this is when the season's starting, he's going to be ready. Um, you look at the way the Twins play, the, the, the pitching staff especially, um, you know, they, they're they on pitch counts. They've shown it here, you know, last year especially. He's not going to let these guys go out and throw that many pitches even last year. No. Um, so they really aren't going to play that much different. They're going to be on pitch counts. Um, they got a mature bullpen again. You got a guy like Sergio Romo. They brought in Tyler Clippard. They've got guys who have been through the wars, have been through the battles. They know how to win. Um, so I think that this sets up pretty well for them, assuming they, you know, they, they can avoid the big injuries uh, to some key players. You know, and they do have depth, which is a good thing. Um, but I think as far as the AL Central goes, you know, they set up probably as good as anybody, probably by fair margin. You know, and it, you know, Luke, you talked about having a. There's no way in 2020 they're going to go to a four-man rotation. They just won't. Um, and, and so that's why I like your thought about a, a six man rotation. Um, and I think that, that it, it, you know, we're starting in July, Rich Hill probably will be close to ready, um, you know, where they weren't really planning on having him for a while. And so you throw Rich Hill in there and, and now all of a sudden, you, you know, you got uh, Odorizzi Barrios, um, uh, Homer Bailey, Rich Hill. And who else am I thinking about, David? You know, you got uh, guys like Smelter and you got guys like Dobnik. Um, I think the Twins could pull that off uh, better than, than most teams. They don't necessarily have, you know, a, a guy that's going to come in there and, and shut somebody out every fifth or sixth day, but you have really capable starting arms there. Um, so I think that is definitely a possibility for them. Uh, looking at then, I guess the, the real question is, and, and I've read some things online and stuff like that, but um, what if you end up, you know, with 14 teams now in the playoffs, what if you end up a World Series of a team that 
you know, won 38 games against a team that won 41 games, do you feel like then that you have, you've produced in a shortened season, a true World Series champion, or, or is there going to be some kind of always asterisks or whatever next to that? Dave? You know, it's an interesting point because when, when you look at where the 82 games were last year, uh, your last year's World Series champion wouldn't even make the playoffs. Yep. Um, so it's it's an interesting thought. I do feel, you know, are, are you going to find a team maybe sneak in? Yeah, you, you might. Uh, you know, who that team would be and out of what division, it's, it's hard to say. Um, hopefully it's not a team like the White Sox or, or Cleveland sneaking up on the Twins. But um, when when push comes to shove and you get to the playoffs, uh, the playoffs are still going to be the playoffs. The, the element is going to be different. The, the atmosphere is going to be different, whether there's fans or not. I still think the cream rises to the top. I still think you're going to see the, the best of the best teams be there. Again, barring maybe some unforeseen injuries during the season. Um, you know, you look at the Yankees, who who on paper would be, you know, one of the favorites of the American League. Well, Judge is still hurt. They don't know what's going on with him. Stanton, he's a walking injury. If either of those two guys miss, you know, a chunk of the season, that lineup is, is totally different than what it looks like on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, if they lose a pitcher, you know, Severino doesn't sound like he's going to go. Um, teams teams can drop out real quick just based off a couple injuries the way this is going to shake out. So I still think you're going to get a World Series champion that that you're going to look back on and say, yeah, they were the best team. Um, it just not mind not about who you think it is. You know, and ESPN had a you know they were talking about that a little bit too in one of the articles that I read, and, and they used the example that in 1987 <laughs> the Twins won 85 games. Yep, they were like yep. 10 games under 500 on the road, <laughs> and. And they won the World Series. You know, do we have an asterisk next to there? No, we don't. You know, they would have been they would have been the fifth place team in the AL East that year, and they won the World Series and won the AL West. You know, so um, there there's definitely it, it, the, the the World Series champion doesn't always win a hundred games. You know, it's not the way that it works. So, uh, Luke, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, I, I don't believe there will be an asterisk next to the World Series champion winner. Uh, it's an even playing field for all teams. Uh, they're all playing the same amount of games. Uh, so they're all playing by the same set of rules and parameters. An asterisk to me is that uh, there was a, a circumstance or a, uh, a team that was playing by uneven playing uh, playing field. You think about the Houston Astros. You think about Barry Bonds hitting home run 73. Those are asterisks in my opinion. So all the teams are playing under underneath the same parameters. Um and I, I think with the with the, uh, the heightened sense of urgency based on a shorter schedule, I think the importance of consistency. I I think a shortened schedule will produce the most uh, prominent World Series champion because it's a team that is going to be able to focus out of the gate, maintain their injuries, play play unique baseball. Uh, and and be consistent over a shorter period of time. I think I think you, you'll hear words like efficiency. Um, but in a shortened season, I think you produce the most efficient World Series champion. Um, you can't allow yourself to be streaky or slumpy. You have to be consistent. And so I think the 82-game World Series champion will be probably the strongest team and most efficient team, in my opinion. Well, it's interesting. I, I, yeah, I definitely think that that's a... Um something that we'll be dealing with if we do get to the A2 game season. But, uh, you know, there's been shortened years with, with, with strikes and things like that. And, um, you know, I think one of the other examples was the 2000, I think it was the 2006 Cardinals won 83 games. You know, they were just a few games over 500 and, you know, got hot at the right time and things like that. And, 
Um, you know, it's not necessarily like the NBA where in the NBA over a seven game series, the, the better team's going to win. You know, that's just the way it works out of it. It's a little bit different in baseball. And if you, I like the word efficient, if you're really maximizing uh, what you have there over that, that amount of time, I think you're, you're going to be good. Okay. We're not going to get to, we only have a minute left here. So we're not going to get to the, the issue of the draft being cut down to five rounds, but uh, maybe that's a, for another time. I think that's an interesting topic as well, but uh, we'll take a break and we'll come on back with uh, some NCAA news. Welcome back to episode 19 on in our second section here. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the NCAA and how it's been is affected, has been affected, could possibly, you know, continue to be affected by what's going on. Um, you know, the first thing on the docket is is how it was impacted by the loss of uh, March Madness. Uh, it's staggering. Um, $375 million lost in Division One uh, from not having uh, the tournament. And that's not even including conferences not having their conference tournaments. So, it, you know, you, you can add on even to that. Um and how that's impacted them and it the the impact is so far ranging it's unbelievable to even kind of comprehend um we're just i'm just gonna look at the u of m as an example you know being the minnesota sports show and, and knowing a little bit about that but um you know and luke you can chime in on that pretty good too but uh the u is looking at a four million dollar deficit at the at the the fiscal year ending on june 30th and that's after just losing the spring season um they were predicting a $1 million surplus prior to that. Uh, and, you know, so that just tells you a little bit about how big of an impact that is. And that's not even coming from a major basketball program. Um, and, you know, the U wasn't going to make the tournament probably uh, at that point. So uh, they have, the U of M as a whole has 25 varsity teams. And I know uh, Coyle, the AD there, has been asked a little bit about how they're going to absorb that. Um, whether there are what programs usually are on, and that's kind of what I'll ask you guys, the, the, the usual suspects when it comes to programs being cut in times of difficulty, you know, top of the list goes wrestling, baseball, softball, and then volleyball. You know, and the U has pretty nationally successful volleyball program, wrestling program, and then, you know, also a softball program this year going to the World Series. Um Worst case scenario, they've mapped out over the next year a $75 million loss in revenue. Um, that's including that there's no fans looking into the fall. Um, coaches across the country, you know, they've asked coaches to reduce. The University of Wisconsin has asked their top 25 earners uh, to take 15% pay cuts. Um, you know, it's just all over the map when it comes to that kind of stuff. So before I get into what the possibilities could be of a missed football season, uh, how do you see this impacting programs and and who you know who do you think are the the first to to be on the chopping blocks Luke? yeah this is we we talked about revenue sharing in the prior segment with the major league baseball and the ncaa is the pinnacle of revenue share and when you start to see dips in revenue or major major retractions of revenue earned uh across whether whether it's basketball football etc the economic impact across the NCAA at all divisions is pretty staggering. Now, when, when you talk about teams in the North, basketball, football, wrestling, hockey, all typically see revenue gains. So if we're just using the University of Minnesota, for example, 
typically hockey is a revenue uh, positive. Have they been? Have they run. been the last few years though with the Big Ten? I don't know if they have been. Uh, based on gate revenue uh, and TV revenue from the Big Ten Network, they still run a they still run a net positive. Hmm. Um, what what teams drive the biggest revenue loss? Baseball. Yeah. Why is it baseball? Baseball travels thirty five man roster plus you know two or three coaches, training staff, uh, and managers. So if you think about buying plane ticket and and the U outside of busing to the University of Iowa busing to uh, Northwestern University. Uh, we would bus to South Dakota State. We'd bus to North Dakota State. Um, and that's where we would bus. And we would fly everywhere else. We would fly to Purdue. We would fly to Indiana, Illinois, Ohio State, Michigan. All of those uh, universities, would we would fly, call it 45 people. Um, you play a 56 regular game season in NCAA Division One baseball. And because you're a team in the North, more than half of your schedule is on the road. So 45 man roster or 35 man roster plus 10 uh, training staff coaches times, uh, you know, about 14 trips a year, it gets expensive quick. So when you talk about programs that are likely to be on the chopping block as a result of their economic impact of uh, coronavirus, uh, wiping out March Madness and uh, quite honestly, probably going to delay uh, the NCAA football season in the North baseball is going to be the first one to, to be looked at. Now in the South baseball is a revenue net positive. So yeah. teams in the SEC LSU uh, is the most profitable college baseball team in the nation. They're not going to get rid of baseball at LSU men's golf, men's soccer, those types of sports are going to be the first ones to be looked at. Um, and this, this rabbit hole could be endless. You, you talk about um, Title IX laws, uh, talk about, um, it, you know, how far do you really go in scholarships? Uh, the conversation is endless, but I think schools in the North, you're going to be looking at baseball, soccer, golf. In the South, you're going to be looking at soccer, golf, uh, among other things. So it, it, it's, it's pretty interesting. And the, the national media is talking quite seriously and the NCAA president, Mark Emmert and the, uh, the conference presidents, uh, this is getting pretty serious. So I'm, I'm interested to see how this unfolds. Yeah. Dave. I think you hit the nail on the head, you know, and, and, you know, not to, to pile on everything he said, but I think one of the, the silent killers for baseball is going to be Title IX just based off of those participation numbers. Um, because of Title IX in, in, the, in the, the proration of, of how many male versus female athletes there, there has to be, um, because of the amount of athletes a baseball team requires, um, it's, it's an easy cut because you're going to be able to save other sports, other men's sports for a program. And basically be able to keep all your women's sports that financially can make it work. You're cutting one sport instead of two or three. So sadly, baseball is going to be on the chopping block in a lot of places up north. Um, you know, in, in getting back to the March Madness thing, um, you'd mentioned the, the $375 million cut. Um, interesting note here, too, Division Two actually is going to make $30 million less. Um, 13.9 going to get distributed there. Division three is actually going to make 22 less down to 10.7 million that they're going to get. So all three levels of the NCAA actually benefit from that tournament. Um, so this is going to go from, from the power five conferences clear down to 
the MIAC, uh, where, where programs are getting hurt and it's going to hurt bad. And sadly, I think baseball, as much as we all love it, is going to be one of them that's really going to get axed in a lot of places, unfortunately. Before I ask you about uh, fall sports and football and stuff like that, I was just going to ask really quick, um, what impact do you see there being on spring sports, and particularly baseball, I guess, because that's kind of one that we're most familiar with, um, allowing those kids from this year, seniors from this year, to have an extra year of eligibility? Who do you think is going to impact the most, Luke? Well, it's certainly going to impact high school seniors that graduated this year. So uh, for for those that may not know, uh, Division One NCAA men's baseball is allowed to hand out 11.7 scholarships for a 35-man roster. Um, football, for, for comparison, I think you're allowed to give uh, somewhere like 85 to 90 full scholarships for a roster of, I think it's around 100, and, and you might have to fact-check me on that one, but it's, it's ballpark. So you can see the disparity. Why? Well, revenue generation, that's a no-brainer. And so if you're allowing the current uh, seniors of a NCAA Division One baseball team those scholarships carry over into eligibility for next season. Now, it's not required. The teams can reshuffle uh, the scholarships that are handed out and divvied up year after year. Um, a lot of people think that when you sign a scholarship as an incoming freshman, that scholarship is guaranteed no, for the no. rest of your um, college uh, experience. It is not. It's an annual contract, quote. Uh, and so, college coaches are going to have to get really creative in how um, their rosters are formed as well as how they divvy up scholarships among their roster um, and giving these, these seniors an extra year of, year of eligibility while it's the right thing to do, hundred percent, the right thing to do. Graduating high school seniors are, are really um, getting screwed by this. Um, the recruit, first of all, they they don't have a season. So guys who were maybe on the fence in terms of being recruited to a division one, division two type school, don't get an opportunity to prove their talents. And two, uh, they might not have any playing time. So guys that were looking to come in and, and play a position right away as a freshman, um, one, their scholarship offer might change Two, their playing time is probably going to be greatly reduced because, um, you're likely going to play a more seasoned player right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really think the impact is going to be on the high school seniors who are uh, prospective Division One, Division Two, Division Three, for that matter, athletes coming in to play college baseball. Um, the way that coaches uh, logistically divvy up their scholarships and uh, develop their roster is going to be uh, quite interesting, to yeah. tell you the truth. That's an, I mean, that's an incredible point because I think all, all three of us have been in that situation where, um, you know, being recruited and ending up uh, picking a college and having that senior year to prove yourself and to get ready and, and to, you know, prepare. And, and I can't imagine, I cannot imagine, you know, not just losing that senior year. You know, you're coming in with it <laughs> with a summer, a spring and a summer completely gone, you know, so you're coming in in a really bad, really bad spot there. Um, and you know, same thing. I know you guys know a lot about scholarships and stuff like that with baseball and how that is shorted, uh, compared to other sports, but, um, Dave, you know, really quick, kind of, what are your, your thoughts about, uh, given that extra year of eligibility? Well, you know, another thing too, is, is the shortened draft. Um, you're going to have a lot of kids, you know, so now you got five rounds, you say what, 100 and 
150 players um, between high school junior, excuse me, high school seniors uh, that may still be drafted, but many now won't. Um, and then your college athletes, juniors and seniors, obviously the seniors may now have a year to come back uh, where they would have just gone pro. Um, so you have, you have that on too, where even less guys turning pro that will still either be trying to come into a college program where they may, maybe would have gone pro right from high school. Um, now they're going to be looking for places to play too. So it's going to get totally flooded. Um, and like Luke said, they're going to have to get creative. creative. Um, you may be looking at teams, you know, rather than cutting guys, trying to find, you know, any, anything, you know, whether it be JV teams or, or additional roster spots or club teams, hey, stick, come play club ball for a semester, you know, for a year and then, uh, you know, move up. You know, they're going to have to get creative. I don't know what the, the actual rules are as far as club goes. I know Minnesota's got, got club. Um, NDSU's got club. Um, there's a lot of D1 schools that have club baseball. It's going to get different. It's going to get challenging. There's going to be some rules that are that are pushed to the limit, I think. Um, but with everything else going on, I, the NCAA probably doesn't even give two craps about it, really. So they're, they're going to get creative. They're going to try and get these kids in. Hopefully the kids, um, you look at the growth between a junior and a senior year, yeah. um, especially for pitchers when it comes to strength and velocity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just hope these kids are getting a fair shake. No, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, okay, so looking at the last thing here with the NCAA, and that is the possibility of, and, and like Luke said, they're, they're, the likelihood that there's going to be, it, we're not going to have a football season like we normally do, um, and, and and how that shakes out, I guess, is to be seen. But um, just looking at some of the numbers are absolutely staggering, and, and I didn't know this until I did some research into it, but um, there is a $4.1 billion made by the 50-plus schools in the Power Five in a season 4.1 billion dollars in the power five schools alone that's 78 million dollars per school um 60 of a school's total operating revenues come from football um in the power five and and that i mean that's absolutely so a missed season would be catastrophic in in so many ways so far beyond football um you know that they're going to do whatever they can to make it whether it's starting late um, if there's closed campuses to begin, you know, how are they going to, what are they going to do? Um, we're probably looking at no fan situations, things like that. Um, you know, a, a possible loss of $3.3 billion, billion. Um, and that's, that's because, you know, the $4.1 billion of the power five make in a regular year, they're looking at a total loss of $3.3 billion because you then save money on the rest of the fall sports that you're not, that aren't playing or participating. So, um, that, that loss expands, uh, over everything, not just, not just sports, the school as a whole, you know, when 60% of your operating revenues come from one sports season, uh, to even think about losing that or portions of that, um, or the gates of that, um, are unreal. So, uh, how do you see it shaking out this fall, at least at this point? I mean, if you're going to really look at it, um, how are schools going to find their way around this, uh, in some way, shape, or form, Dave? Well, you know, looking looking smaller school, I kind of looked through what NDSU, uh, obviously they're well-known now for their football. Um, that program basically drives the entire athletic budget for the university. Uh, NDSU's athletic budget is $24.8 million as a whole university, so, you know, markedly less than, than U of M. Um, they are supposed to go to Oregon on the – 5th of September, excuse me, 5th of September, 
Oregon's going to pay them $650,000 to come out and play. That is a chunk of change that now might not be there um, in, in the grand scheme of the athletic budget, a, a large chunk of change. Now, if there's no fans, which is Oregon has already came out and said that there basically will be no fans at any of their sporting events, um, NDSU still makes that money if Oregon plays, which then puts Oregon in a, a massive spot having to pay a school dang near a million dollars to come out and play when you don't have a fan in the stands to help pay for that money. Mm-hmm. So NDSU is set to make 650000 that game. Um, we talked about the NCAA situation. Um, they're actually losing $600,000 in that situation too. So rather than getting 800000 which they annually get, they're looking at $200,000. Um, if they're able to play the Missouri Valley Conference only, um, they're going to take a $3 million hit in revenue from the football program also. And if they're able to not play any season at all, um, the football program actually, as far as actual ticket revenue for the entire sports program is 75 to 80%. Jeez. Um, so another 3.65 million would be lost if there's no football. So you're talking darn near between that. Um, you're talking darn near $8 million, almost a third of their budget would, would be gone. So, I mean, this could be devastating. Um, uh, for all schools, big schools, small schools, you look at a school like NDSU, this could have massive impacts, not so much on football going forward, but you look at the other sports, you look at baseball, um, you look at, uh, you know, their track and field uh, program is one out of 10, 10 straight conference titles. Well, that's not a big revenue building program. So what do you do there? Um, they're in the process. They were, they were going to start building a $38 million indoor practice football facility. Well, that's been put on hold clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot a lot of things um, on a small scale add up to a, a big problem. Is there any way around this, Luke? I don't think so. Um, this is sort of the stress test. Um we talk about the revenue generating sports subsidizing other sports and the remaining, you know, the rest of the the athletic department, but at most division one schools, athletics subsidizes most of the university as a whole, not just athletics, but also academics. So your unintended consequence of shortening a season or removing a season now puts stress and pressure on the academic institution. So what's the unintended consequence or the ripple effect? Well, Tuition. Tuition is going to see inflated tuition prices. You're going to see rising costs of education um, continuing to go further. You're going to, with a rising cost of education, you're not going to have as many uh, kids applying to, you know, go to school. So it's it's supply and demand economics. You have you have a, a supply of education, but not as much demand from high school seniors that want to pay an inflated rate to go to school as a result of football and basketball being canceled, prices continue to go up. So this is going to get into a pretty vicious cycle here in the near term, near term being probably three, four years. I think these ripples are going to have an impact. Um, If the football, college football season does get played this fall, I think it's truncated. I think, uh, you know, the, the NDSUs aren't going to go to Oregon. It's going to be conference play only. Um, that's obviously going to have a very material financial impact. I think when you look at the commissioners of all the conferences, as well as the presidents of the universities, they're going to look at how much do athletics subsidize academics? And is there a balance that we can achieve so that we don't completely, uh, you know, demolish one side or the other. So I think if there is an NCAA college football season, 
Um, it's going to be conference uh, games only in the fall. Um, I think what's a more realistic uh, sort of plan is uh, the college football season is going to be a spring sport 2021. That that was my bold prediction last yeah, week. Yeah, um, I think I think that is probably the most realistic timeline for uh, college football. But this college sports has a way far far reaching impact than just athletic departments. We're talking about the whole institution of yep. college education. Yeah, that's interesting. And it'd be really interesting to see if you had football and college basketball going at the same time, how that would impact things and numbers and things like that as well. But um, all right, uh, we'll wrap that NCAA section up. Uh, that was some pretty heavy stuff. So let's come back uh, in our third section and have a little bit lighter uh, what if topics. Let's come back to episode 19 of maybe next year in our third section here. We're going to try and have a little bit of actual fun. You know, the last one was a little bit heavy there. Um, we'll talk about First off, I wanted to ask Luke just cause uh, we, I know me and David talked about this a couple of weeks ago, what our favorite quarantine games have been um, to watch. You know, I watched a really good one here yesterday uh, on FSN, uh, the 2002 game five twins and, and A's uh, took me, took me back to being a freshman in college and, and watching that and how nerve wracking it was. And, and, I think one of the biggest things I took away from it was realizing that was the last time the Twins won a playoff series um, 18 years ago. Uh, and, and it's not like they haven't been there either. You know, they, they've been there. They won. Oh, gosh, let's see if I can pull this off. Uh, they won in 2-3-4, um, 6, 8, they lost in 163, 9, they won in 163. That was another that was a really good game, that 163 game against Detroit. Uh, they won in ten, wild card in fifteen, and then they won last year. And in all those, all those times, they haven't won a playoff series. You know that, that that's we should talk about that more. I don't know why we don't talk about that more. How unbelievable that actually is. That stat in itself. Uh, but no, it was fun to watch that O two game. Um, some of those good memories from that day. Um, that was such an awesome. Tw- I mean, such a fun Twins team. You know, they talk about a lot of times on the on the telecast about how the, you know, the A's had won 20 in a row that year. That was the Moneyball A's and, and they had the best record in the major leagues and the twins were coming in just this young upstart team. You know, you got names like Minkiewicz and Louis Rivas and Christian Guzman and Corey Koski and Jock Jones and Torrey Hunter, um, AJ Prasinski, you know, Brad, all those guys. That was just a great fun team, you know, so it was cool to see all them at that, that young age um, guys that are still, you know, in a lot of Kadir as well. Um, still involved to this day. So that was one of the fun ones I've watched recently. Luke, what are some of your favorite uh, uh, quarantine games that you watched here? Yeah, I've really only watched two uh, quarantine sporting events. Uh, you know, I tried to, tried to you know, enjoy nature, try to be one with nature a little bit more, you know, <laughs> put, put, my, put my feet in the grass, you know, roll around a little bit. Um, but no, I watched uh, game 163 against the Tigers. Um, very, very classic game in Twins history. Um, and then it was Choketown USA, which is pretty typical for Minnesota sports. Um, I thought, you know, that should have been the title of this podcast, Choketown USA, but, um, <laughs> you know, I digress. And then I watched, uh, the 2019 Masters, you know, oh, watch okay. Tiger come back and absolute just come back to Tiger form. And, uh, that was awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was to be to be fair, probably the biggest thing that I, you know, 
miss out of quarantine sport, you know, sports being canceled because of quarantine, how can you not love watching the masters every year? Um, it's kind of the, the kickoff of the sporting year, so to speak, uh, for people like us living in the upper Midwest where, you know, we're, we're essentially in quarantine anyway, from about late October <laughs> to, uh, end, end of March. Um, the masters is kind of like, we get to wake up, we get to come out from underneath our rocks. We get to go outside. You see the green, you see Augusta national. I mean, God, you can smell the pimento cheese in your living room. Um, so, so I, yeah, the, the 19 masters with tiger fist pumping it at the end. I mean, that's, that's Americana if you ask me. So those are really the only two that I watched. I, yeah, I remember that. Well, we were, we were actually driving. So funny. You talk about coming out of your cocoon. Finally in the upper Midwest, we were driving out to, play a baseball our first baseball games of the spring games of the year in hot springs and listen to that on the radio and trying to follow it on my phone as we're getting ready for our first games and you know a lot going on there but that was a lot of fun so uh, anything you've watched here recently last few weeks dave that uh you enjoyed i've been enjoying watching anything that took place back when i would have been you know seven eight nine years old um i actually watched the florida state nebraska orange bowl i can't even remember what the yeah. year was yeah. Um, but that was back in the Charlie Ward days, the fast break offense. That was actually when I became a Florida State Seminole fan, probably because I was a, a bandwagon jumper as a young kid, and they won a national championship. But, yeah, I had their starter uh, jacket. It, 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 was, it was fun to watch that game. Uh, Charlie Ward battling with Tommy Frazier coming down to the end, this field goal. So, Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of options, that's for sure. Uh, all right, so – we're going to skip the NBA thing. I had a question there about whether the NBA should make it a comeback this year. I think most of us probably all agree that, nah, <laughs> might not be a, the best timing for that, um, you know, if they do some kind of extended playoff. But what I really wanted to get to, and this is what I wanted to get to last week, and we kind of ran out of time, but uh, there was an ESPN article and um, a couple of weeks back about some what every every Major League Baseball team's biggest what-if questions. Um, and... Some of you agree with, some of you didn't agree with, whatever. But there were four ones in particular that I really thought were kind of cool questions. Um, the first one on there was, we'll start with it because it was a Twins one. And that was, if Jack Morris's Game 7 pitching performance in 1991 against the Atlanta Braves, the one to nothing 10 inning shutout, is the best pitching performance of all time. Um, and all three of us being pitchers, I think it's a great question. Um whether that's true or not, I think there's a lot of things that kind of go into factoring whether you believe that's the case or not. Um, when, when you're going to talk about straight numbers, it doesn't it doesn't stack up as the, as the best game of all time. It, it's something I think like 40th all time um, uh, numbers wise, but that's including all regular season games and postseason games. You know, you have Don Larson's perfect game in, in 19 oh, shoot what year was that? 1960s. Um, that was a game five. It wasn't a, it wasn't a clinching game. Um, you had Johnny Padres in 1955 beat uh, Brooklyn finally beat the Yankees that year uh, two to nothing. That was a great, you know, they'd lost the Yankees however many years in a row. Uh, that was a clinching game. Um, Ralph Terry, the Yankees in, in 1962 won one to nothing against the Giants in the game seven. Um, and then Sandy Koufax two nothing win against the twins in 1965, which one we know if you're a, a twins fan, you know about that a little bit on two days rest came back and beat the twins complete game two to nothing on two days rest. Um, so those are the ones that kind of score in that same area. But I honestly, and, and maybe it's a biased thing being a Twins fan or whatever, but I honestly think Morris's game has to be top three all time. 
um, because there was no margin for error. Uh, the Twins didn't score a run until the 10th inning. Um, you know, you had that amazing, amazing eighth inning or whatever where they, uh, uh, if you remember, uh, uh, Pendleton hit the ball to the, to the fence. Um, uh, who was it? Lonnie Smith was on first base. Gagney and Knobloch deked him. You guys remember that? Uh, deked him. He should have scored on it. It ended up at third base. They loaded the bases and they got the, the double play. Herbeck to Harper, back to Herbeck to end it. Um, you know, 10 innings and part of the best world series of all time. It really was that, that 1901 world series was the best of all time. He had 118 pitches after the ninth inning, which, you know, to any of you, us three, that wasn't in our day. That wasn't a whole lot. I mean, 118 was kind of a a regular day, but, um, he went to Tom Kelly, went up to him after the ninth inning and said, you good. And he said, I'm good. And Kelly said, ah, it's just a game anyways. Uh, set him back out there and and for the 10th inning and he won one or nothing. So I think that, Morris's game, and I think it's probably top three all time for me. Um, even if you're looking back to those, you know, all the way back to the 50s and 60s and things like that, just because of the situation. Um, I don't know if you guys looked into the Morris game at all or, or your thoughts on it. You know, Dave, you probably remember it uh, better than any of us, um, being a year older or whatever, and a few years older than, than Luke. But um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I remember it well. You know, if you look at single game, uh, pitching or, or even you know a guy as far as having their stuff you know being a Cubs fan too you know the Kerry Wood 20 strikeout game where his yeah. his stuff was absolutely filthy um you know it's hard to hard to put it up there with something like that but when you take into consideration everything you just said game seven 10 innings shut out um you know and, and the other thing is too is what happened the night before uh-huh. where you walk off on a on a Kirby Puckett home run um, it would have been really, really easy to come out the next night and be flat because of how you won the night before. But he came out and he threw and he threw and he threw and he threw and he threw, and he threw in, in ten innings. I mean, that, that isn't even in the vocabulary of a pitcher anymore. <laughs> no. um, so it, it's got to be top three all time as far as performance with everything that was on the line, the atmosphere. Um, you know, sixty thousand Homer Hankies flying. Um, yeah, he stepped up. One of the biggest, got to be one of the biggest clutch performances, if nothing else, of all time in baseball history. Yeah, it, Luke, I know I was a second grader then, and so Dave would have been a third grader, and, and you would have been just a little toddler probably at that point. But uh, um, I'm sure you've watched it since. What are your thoughts on that? Where does that game stack up? Yeah, you're not going to get any disagreement out of me. Um, and, and really, one of the best pitchers duels of all time. You had a young Johnny uh-huh. Smoltz. And, and one of the things that I like about, about the game is you got Jack Morris with a big boy adult mustache and you got young John Smoltz with just a little pencil, just a little pencil baby mustache. And, you know, it's, it, that's really the matchup that I was interested in. But, uh, you know, Smoltz, he went, what, seven and a third, seven and two thirds, shut yep. out baseball in game seven. I mean, what more can you ask for out of a, a starting pitcher, a guy who's, just starting out in his career. So really one of the best pitchers duels in all of baseball history, but 10 innings game seven. I mean, that's, that is not choke town USA. That is clutch town USA. So I think, I think Jackie Morrison in game seven, it's gotta be the best out there. And I try to be as objective as possible. You know, I remember <laughs> watching Kerry Woods game against the Astros. That was on TV. That was actually on TV. Dominating. Right. It, that was the most dominating pitching performance, I would say. You know, you could argue Roger Clemens, you know, so on and so forth. But 
all things considered, Jack Morris game seven, best pitching performance of all time. And I, I think many, many, many people would, would uh, agree with us on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I like the Smoltz part of that too. He gave away to Mike Stanton and then Alejandro Pena. Alejandro Pena was one that was pitching the Larkin when he hit the, uh, the game when he hit there. Um, all right. Uh, next on this, and I, I want to try and be brief with this if we can, because there was two more that I want to get to, but the Derek Jeter question was on there and, I mean, this could be endlessly debated, but the question is, is Derek Jeter overrated? Um, and, you know, I know you guys aren't Yankees fans. I obviously, um, aside from really hating the White Sox in the mid-2000s, I've never really hated a team like the Yankees. Um, uh, the question about him being overrated, I, I think it is it is far and away a, a, a yes, um, an absolute yes. I know way back when when he went through his last year, um, and the Twins honored him at their last game that he played. It. I, I was absolutely beside myself. I could not believe they would be honoring a player uh, who was such a factor in so much pain that it <laughs> caused the organization. Um, but he, everywhere he went, he got honored. And, you know, he was the first ballot Hall of Famer. I believe he was the first ballot Hall of Famer. I'm not going to argue that. But him being overrated, I think, is probably – I think if he plays for anywhere outside of New York or Boston, um, you know, we don't look at him the same way. He was, he was, even in his best days, he was slightly above average numbers wise, stat wise at his position. And he was bad as he aged at his position. Um, you know, so the defensive end of it, he was not elite at any point in his career. Um, you know, in his 158 postseason games, it's incredible he played that many postseason games. His win probability was 0.02, so almost nil. There was almost, his win probability was almost even. Um, so he was not numbers wise, a big positive factor in Yankees total wins in over those 158 games. I know we have memories in our minds of him diving into the stands um, to catch a pop up. I know we have that, that amazing play that he made in in Oakland um, coming across the field and cutting it off uh, things like that. But when it boils down to it, numbers wise uh, he was pretty average um, in the postseason and defensively. You know, so I don't know where you guys land on the Jeter debate. Like I said, I'm, I'm trying not to get too deep into it. You know, not being a being a Minnesota sports show or whatever. But uh, you know, Luke, what are your what are your overall uh, thoughts on him? Yeah, I think I think you raised some interesting points. Um, is he overrated? Uh, slightly. Um, if you look at his his overall wins above replacement, um, his highest WAR was 9.1 in 1999, and hung around about the four or five average over the remainder of his career. He's got a negative defensive win, win above replacement in his career. Wow. Not too great. Um, you know, he was very consistent in the playoffs. He bat, he had, you know, 308 average uh, across all of his postseason appearances. Um, in ALDS, he hit 343. In seven World Series, he hit 321. You know, he, he he's, quote, called Mr. November, uh, one, just because he played a lot of games in November. But he was fairly consistent in the playoffs and absolutely first ballot Hall of Famer. But you got to look at the protection in the lineup mm-hmm. that he had hitting around, you know. And I could, the list goes on. Paul O'Neill, Tino Martinez, Gary Sheffield, Alex Rodriguez, Robinson Cano, so on, so on, so on, and so forth. Bernie Williams. You know, he had a lot of protection in the lineup. And I think a lot of people sort of overlook that. Um I would rather pitch to Derek Jeter than Alex Rodriguez, so I'm yep, going to serve yep. it up to Derek Jeter. Um, Jason Giambi, I, and again, the list goes on and on. So is he overrated? Yes, but not overwhelmingly overrated where it sort of disgusts me. 
Um, <laughs> very, 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 very consistent baseball player. He was the consummate professional. And I think that's what people that about him think of when they think of Derek Jeter was consummate he was professional. An, uh, he was an icon. He was an ambassador to the game for the most popular and most recognized major league baseball franchise in the history of the game. And so, um, skill wise, uh, overrated, but he, he not, was a, not by a, you know, a long shot. He was a biracial angel, right? Dave, what do you got? Yeah, I think, well, for a guy I hate about as much as any <laughs> baseball player in the last 20 years, he's one of those guys who you hate, but you actually respect him a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, for a good 10, 12 year period, if you had a guy on second base with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning and you had to score a runner, there wasn't too many other guys in the major leagues who you probably wanted to play than him. Um, you know, I was actually surprised when I pulled up his statistics that he was actually a 310 career hitter. Um, you know, the, the stats, though, they do not jump out at you at all in any, any particular category. Um, he played the game the right way. Like you guys said, he played for the right team at the right time. Um, so all the playoff games, but, you know, he, he was clutch a lot of times when it counted in, in big spots. When the lights were bright, he showed up. Um, you know, his, his last at bat at Yankee Stadium was one I remember sitting watching it. Yeah. And just knew he wasn't going to get out. And he fought the count and fought the count and fought the count. And I remember texting my brother saying he's going to slap this thing between first and second. And sure enough, there's the little dibbler line drive uh, ground ball right between first and second to score the guy from second base to win the game. So he came up when he when he needed to time and time again. And I think that overinflates, you know, what everybody thinks of him. Um, overrated, yeah, but again, you got to respect it the way he played. Never won an MVP. No, he didn't, did he? Not yeah, sure. probably not even close either. I bet. All right, I think the right team, right place is probably a good play, a good good way to sum it up. All right, the the, the Astros, and we have talked about the Astros. We we were in the midst of all of the cheating scandal. We talked about them on here at length, um, but it's a great question, and that is, uh, how long will the Astros' 2017 World Series title be tarnished? Um, I I don't I don't think that it, there will ever be a, a time where people will look back on that and say. Yeah, that was yeah they deserve that was the best team that year. Um, it might have been the best team that year, uh, but it will always be looked at. They they didn't prove that they were the best team. They proved that they could cheat the best, and that and that's the way I think that. And they will forever be the villains. We talked about the before the correlation with the Yankees being the most hated team in America. Um, I think we see a season this year. If we would have seen a regular, normal 160, I think those first few weeks and months where the Astros went on the road would have been incredible to watch um, because they will be forever the villains. And, and I think those people that, that played on that team and that we know uh, for a fact were, were part of that cheating scandal will, will always be remembered for that. And so I don't think that there will be a time where people will look back on 2017 as the Astros and say, yeah, they were the best team. They deserve that. Dave. To me, never. You know, as a baseball purist and, and a guy who lives, breathes, eats baseball, has my whole life, um, I guess you could you could basically say they're dead to me. You know, <laughs> you know, to me, to me, it'll it'll never go away. Um, sadly, I do feel to your your very casual baseball fan or somebody who just tunes in, um, you know, within five years they'll probably forgot about it. But to your to your baseball purist, I think to us three. There, there's no turning back on something like that. To me, that's worse than what they did was worse than steroids. It was worse than greenies back in the, the you know the, the 70s, 80s. 
anything that's been done before this to me was was worse because it was so planned out so so deliberate um and then to try and get away with it and, be, and consider yourself clean um it's just to me it's it's death it's over mm-hmm. nope yeah the the biggest disappointment of not having an mlb season this year would have been the 2020 astros shame tour yeah. uh <laughs> i think you would have if, if if you would stack up the number of hit by pitches uh, the Astros were, were planning on taking this year versus the rest of the league, I think it would be just incredible. So I am disappointed in that. They deserve every, every beaning coming their way. Um, people still hate the Black Sox scandal. People still yeah. hate Pete Rose. People, yeah. people can't stand Barry Bonds. You know, it, anybody who has ever blatantly cheated the game now, Pete Rose didn't cheat. He gambled on the sport. And I know that there's equal sides to that story, but you know, the Black Sox were in the night 19 teens and people still, yeah, people still cross their arms and go, they cheated. They deserve what they get. And shoeless Joe deserved what he got. And they're, you know, so on and so forth. And I really think the, that major league baseball and the commissioner had an opportunity to make an example out of the Astros and, and really, you know, pin them down with a, a punishment that fit the crime and they didn't. And so I'm disappointed there. And that team out of any team deserves an asterisk in my opinion. And how long will that last? As long as uh, guys from that team remain on the team. Once you have complete roster turnover, then I think people will decouple themselves from, you know, the scandal. But until mm-hmm. then, I think uh, they get every bad thing that's coming their way. Yeah. Yep. And, th- and that was one of the things we talked about when we talked about, well, why weren't they punishing players in particular? A lot of those players were not were no longer there, and so they would be punishing the teams that they had gone to and so on and so forth. But um, all right. Uh, the last question was, if Barry Bonds had never done steroids, would he be the best player of his generation? Um, I, 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 without even getting into the numbers before even looking, I would say, yeah, I would have said yes. Um I think if we're, if we're looking at things physically, statistically, things like that, a lot of the consensus is that he's probably clean up until about 1998. From 1990, so with the Pittsburgh Pirates or whatever, 1990 up until 2003, statistically, he was every single year, he was far and away the number one war player in baseball. Far and away. I mean, it was not, I mean, that's part of the joke is that it's, it's incredible how far apart it was. His war was 162.8. The next closest was 102.8, and that was Roger Clemens, who you probably could put into the same boat with that as well. Um, He had a four-year period in there where he had the highest war of anybody since Babe Ruth. Um, You know, and and so he was in, and that was prior to possible steroid use. Um, Nine years, I mean, nine is the number one player before he even looked into taking steroids. You know, nine years is the number one player in baseball. So almost a decade. He was the best player in baseball without steroids. So, um, you know, the, the, the only person in that 13 year period from 90 to 03 that even came close was Albert Pujols. And that was in 2002, 2003. And, you know, I think there could be arguments made probably that he could have been, you know, taking some of the same things or, or had some kind of performance enhancing drugs there as well. Um, but we won't say that for certain. Um, and I don't think we will be able to say that for certain. So I guess if you look back at bonds or do you see him as even with all this, the best player of his generation, Luke or Dave? 
Yeah, you know, I've, I've been a Barry Bonds defender, which which is kind of funny since uh, I just got done trashing the Houston Astros for blatantly cheating. Um, you know, I guess I'm of the mindset that, you know, he did steroids, it was wrong, but it wasn't just him. Pitchers were using it, other hitters were using it. I think it was way wide, more widespread than, than anybody um, chooses to believe. Um, so a little bit more of a level playing field than I think people would, would like to think. But when you look back, and I did not realize this, you look back at 1990, when his last year with the Pittsburgh, second last year with the Pittsburgh Pirates, he hit 301, 33 home runs, 114 RBIs, 52 stolen bases. <laughs> 52 stolen bases. You know, the next year he had 24, 25 home runs, 160 RBIs, 43 stolen bases. You know, he stole 30 or more bases pretty much every year up until 1998, uh, which which you mentioned that arguably with the steroids, you mm-hmm. know, he, he put on so much size. But, I mean, un- unreal. His numbers just absolutely blew my mind when I pulled him back up. I forgot how dominant he was even back with the Pittsburgh Pirates. So, uh, unreal player. Uh, probably something we'll never see again to that extent. You know, in, in hearing other players talk about how good his eyesight was, where, you know, he'd take batting practice, and, and as soon as the ball would leave the, the pitcher's hand, he'd be calling out ball or strike. Um, you know, it, 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 he was a talent. He never should have done steroids. He, he would have gone down in history as one of the best ever in my eyes. Um, but the steroids definitely tank things. And, and like we just talked about, when you when you break the rules, you get what you get. Yeah. And I think it was, was it 01 that he hit 73? Was that the year? I might be wrong. 01 was 73, yeah. Okay, and, you know, I mean, there that, that was the most incredible thing that you could possibly watch happen on a baseball diamond. And the, the amount of times that he was walked, any time that he saw a pitch, I mean, he, he, it was unbelievable. There, there was no throwing him a hittable pitch that year. Um, yeah. and, and, and you'll just, we'll never see anything like that ever again. I, I know that we won't. Um, so anyways, all right, all we're going to wrap that. One more thing, Corey, the, the, the 2002 playoffs he had, um, 17 games, eight home runs, 27 walks. Wow. But the hurting he put on the Atlanta Braves was, was something that I will remember forever because I had multiple friends who were Braves fans and watching him absolutely destroy them. Uh, was one of the one of the better things I've seen in a baseball field. Yeah, that was the, they lost to the Angels that year. Yep, Angels right. World Series. Yep, that's right. All right, we'll wrap that up and we'll come on back with our bold predictions. Thanks for coming back to maybe next year, episode nineteen. We're going to finish up to, uh, with our bold predictions. First thing we want to do though is thank our sponsor, Minnesota Nice Marketing, who put together our awesome website. Uh, for us, a little bit about them, uh, Minnesota Nice Marketing. In today's website world, website credibility judgments are 75% based on overall aesthetics, which means that design and functionality of your website are more important than ever. First impressions are 94% design related. This is where Minnesota Nice Marketing comes into the picture. Minnesota Nice Marketing exists to help small businesses create a collaborative web and mobile page that is easy to understand, affordable, and helps you be seen and found online. Minnesota, visit minnesotaniceMarketing.com to get your free quote for your webpage or website redesign. Um, go ahead and check them out at that website, or you can go to the bottom of uh, maybe or nextyearpodcast.com. There's a link there for them as well. All right, bold prediction time. Um, I'll give it. To, I guess I'll kick it to you first, Luke, since apparently you, you you feel okay with yours. Go ahead. Yeah, I got two of them. Uh, my my non sports related bold prediction: movie theaters are dead. 
we will not see any reopening of movie theaters from now until eternity. It's going to be direct to consumer. Uh, yeah, the movie theaters we know it is dead. So, Interesting. Um, update on my bold prediction from last week. I still think Beyonce and Jay-Z are together. Like I said, I give an August <laughs> timeline on that one. Um, so we'll continue to check in on that as we get through the summer. My, my sports-related bold prediction, I think the UFC is the only sporting event that will have events through 2020. Um, mm. We had USC 249 the other night uh, in Jacksonville without fans. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't hate it. Uh, you are able to hear more of the athletes um, as they're competing, which I think is a, mm-hmm. it's a very unique angle. And I've been calling for, uh, you know, commentator-less sporting events on TV for years. Uh, mostly because of my disdain for Burt Blylevin, um, which could be an episode <laughs> in its own. Um, now there, you know, Joe Rogan obviously does an amazing job. Daniel Cormier. Uh, so there was there was comment commentary, but being able to actually hear the the fighters talking to each other in the ring, hearing how laboring you know laboring their breathing was um, was very interesting. So. A bold prediction, UFC is the only sports organization that has sports in 2020. Wow. Yeah, I hope, geez, I hope you're wrong, but I can definitely see that possibly taking place. Um, all right. Uh, mine kind of, I guess, a little bit similar. I was going to predict that the Major League Baseball and the players, the owners and the players are not going to be able to come to an agreement and that we will not see Major League Baseball uh, this year. Um, just everything I've read and, and looked online, it seems like they are at a really uh, two really opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and and so the, for them to really come to an agreement, there's going to be a, a lot of things that are going to need to happen or take place. So um, that would be my bold prediction. Once again, I hope it's not a prediction that necessarily takes place or, or comes to fruition, but uh, that's what I got. Dave, how about you? Um. I'm going to go with something, I guess, that's against what I believe. Um, I don't think the NBA should come back, but my bold prediction is that they are going to come back at some form Hmm. and at least try and play the playoffs. Uh, My bold prediction, though, is that in doing so, one of their more predominant players uh, will sustain a serious injury um, and and probably miss next season. Uh, To me, it just doesn't make sense. These guys have been sitting around. I keep thinking of Sean Kemp. Um, in the weight gain and all those illegitimate children, uh, <laughs> you know, I just feel I feel I feel it. That, that something bad's going to happen. They're they're going to do it because the the market share is there for TV possible TV revenue. Uh, but I just feel somebody somebody's going to go down. That's that's interesting that you say that because the, 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 I don't know if you've watched uh, the last episode of the Last Dance, um, but a big part of it was about when Jordan came back from his 15 months of playing baseball. Uh, he couldn't play. He he really struggled down the stretch in those late games and things like that because he was not yet in basketball shape. And I think the average fan doesn't understand what it takes to actually go out and do those things. You know, it takes all year, all the you know, all around the year training and and things like that to actually be in the shape to do those things. Um, so I can definitely see that being you know a possibility that they come back too soon or whatever, and they're not physically ready, and and they see some uh, some negative uh, effects of that. So. All right. Well, thanks a lot, uh, guys, for, for joining me tonight. I think we got to pretty much what we wanted to. That's awesome that we don't usually get to everything on the list. But um, thanks for listening. Be sure to check us out on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and check us out at nextyearpodcast.com. And uh, we'll see you all back here for Episode 20 next time. 